reflecting on it. <coughs> the the one who knows is witnessing, and uh, rather than taking the position of someone who has to practice to become something, they just contrast those two perceptions. You know, they're like the self. The ego is always, I've got to do something in order to better myself or get something I don't have or I've got to get rid of of uh, bad thoughts or faults and that there. So the ego is, is always, you know, it's, it's never content. There's always something uh, better that one could one could become always something better, because mm. the ego is like that. It's conditioned. Its very nature is unsatisfactory, so it can't ever provide satisfaction mm. to you. You'll never feel content or satisfied if you're just a slave of the conditioned conditioning of your mind. But that's why you, you can't really believe it no matter what it says. <clears throat> so getting to know this ego is uh, rather than, you know, trying to become someone who doesn't have an ego, which is, you know, going around with the same problem, trying to become an, a nobody uh, is is still the ego operating and still bound into concepts, ideas of becoming, trying to get rid of an ego, or trying to become some idealized uh, no self. So in uh, investigating this. It's witnessing then this ability to reflect on uh, getting to know the ego as the ego. So once you know what the ego is, then it, its power is uh, taken away. As long as you you are you don't know what your ego is, and you're still uh, you know you still operate from it and believe it and and uh, are intimidated and oppressed by your ego, then it, it's, it's in command. You, you become enslaved to it. But the ego is not the problem. It's not, you're not trying to get rid of it, but to know what it is. So when we, when we, uh, recognize through awareness the ego is is created in this present moment. You have to start thinking. You have to follow your not not thinking in, in the habitual thinking, the identity and assumptions you have about yourself whatever they might be, good or bad. 
So the silent witness or the puto or putang sarnangachami or puru in Thai, they, they, uh, in the Thai force tradition they use this, they describe it as puru, one who knows. Actually there's no pu, there's no, there's no one. There's just knowing. There's not that one that knows, but knowing. It's very direct. You know, it's a direct knowing, it's not knowing about. So this is to, to recognize this ability we all have as a, it's a natural ability, it's not a cultivated one. Not something remote and refined that depends on, on ideal conditions for uh, accessing it, but to be, recognize it is what I'm encouraging. So then we go to, say, say the breath at this time. Just notice your breath. The inhalation, exhalation, the breathing. So that's witnessing, isn't it? You know, there's a witness there. There's a, a watching, an observing, the inhalation, exhalation. There's a knowing, isn't it, when you're using the, say, the breath as an object, as it's the breathing is is a natural condition the body's doing, not the kind of something I'm making my body do. It just does it, whether I'm, even if I'm unconscious or asleep, it's still breathing, knows what to do. So breathing is, is a vital function of this formation. And the awareness of that breathing. You can be aware when the inhalation begins, when it reaches its peak and stops and the exhalation begins. You can, there's a knowing, isn't there, of the beginning, middle and end of each inhalation, exhalation. So this is, and it's a witnessing of it. It's a, recognizing it, that the, the breath is like this. It's not judging it, you know, criticizing one's breathing. It's just a pure recognition, ability to realize, to, to contact reality, because the breathing is, is, is a natural function that we, isn't created out of our ignorance and our fears and desires. It's, it's the way it is. We don't create an ego around breathing. And we don't compare who breathes better than 
I breathe better than you do, unless we want to be absurd. So the inhalation is something, you know, generally people don't notice unless they develop anapanasati. You know, you don't, you aren't that, it's so automatic, so habitual that one can just breathe and never really notice it until you become, until breathing becomes difficult. But there's an awareness, a discerning function happening, isn't it? You know the inhalation, exhalation. You don't even have to use the words. You don't have to think inhalation or exhalation. You just know there's a discernment of like this. And then we, we use the words like inhalation, exhalation, just as, as pointers, not as as definitions. We use the beginning and ending as just reference points rather than uh, some kind of mystical meaning behind uh, the word beginning and ending. We're not making it into, you know, any kind of uh, uh, puzzle or mystery that you have to discover, but just to develop a confidence in something quite simple and natural to us, the, the witnessing of the way it is. So, you know, if you read books about <coughs> uh, breathing techniques and, and so forth, you, you can impose these upon your breath, like, should I breathe out long now or short? And, I breathe from the belly or from the chest, or then we can we go in. You know, we can the information we acquire from from uh, books on yoga and other sources. We can project onto this and create a problem around this. But I'm not pointing to to uh, to breathing exercises or using breath at this moment for anything other than a focus for awareness so that you you can investigate what what's actually taking place so when when I'm watching the breath now I don't have to think I'm breathing and this is my breath those pointless thoughts aren't they But there's certainly, it's quite obvious, the breath is like this, inhalation. So in this awareness of the breath, there's also discernment, isn't it? It's not... There is this ability to to know things as they are, and it's not verbal. It's not it's not a you know comparing or based on ideas or ideals of how things should or shouldn't be. But it is like the inhalation at this moment, just the way it is.
So at this moment, there's no sense of a self. Unless I say, am I, am I doing it right? Am I, have I got it? Okay. Is this what he, then I start creating the sense of, am I able to comprehend this profound teaching at this moment? Or do I have the right take on it? Then the, then the ego pops in, you know, and takes over. So forget all that, you know, it's not a matter of, of, uh, doubting and question is there of, should you look at it exactly like I do? Or is my, Reflection, my witnessing the same as yours. Don't make problems. Don't don't com- compound anything. But just trust in your own awareness at this moment. To, to just allow it to be what it is. Being with it, but not grasping it or not identifying with it. Now that's just a, a, a way of establishing this this uh, sense of puto, the knowing, or the witness, the silent witness, just on the, something that, like the breath. And then they then say. Um, the posture, the four postures. So we're all sitting now, the sitting posture. So I'm no- noticing just the experience of sitting, discerning it is like this. Witnessing to the, to the experience of sitting at this present moment is like this for me, you know, the, what when I bring attention to the to the posture of my body, it's like this. So the discerning ability to you know it's aware of the say the different pressures or or tensions or sensations just through through observing the uh, witnessing the reality of sitting of the body sitting is like this this is silent witness and then the ego jumps in by saying, am I sitting properly? Am I, am I doing it right? And the doubting, uh, questioning, you know, uh, way that, that one's thinking abilities uh, kind of take over. Now this is not a matter of thinking, is it? Of thinking about the perfect sitting posture, you know, full lotus position and then 
and then comparing your present ability with the ideal or make a doubting or having views and opinions just trusting and recognizing the reality of this moment as the body is in this posture of sitting is like this this is this is like in using this intuitive intelligence learning to to recognize it So this silent witness, Bhutto, is not, uh, it's not judging, it's not, uh, you know, a created thing. We, we use the word Bhutto just as a, to point to it, to, to remember. The habit tendencies are to, to do everything from the ego. I'm sitting, I'm practicing meditation, I'm doing anapanasati, my posture and my body, what should or shouldn't be, what the book says, what the suttas say, what the Ajahn says, what the senior monk, senior nun says, what other people think, this is all the ego operating. And of course that's, that's the world that we create. That's not reality. Those are projections, assumptions, fears, and desires that we create. So, in, so therefore, that that part of it is, you know, to begin to recognize the suffering of of this blindness when we when we're not when we don't have a refuge in the Buddha. Then, of course, the we we, we don't have any real refuge. We're kind of like leaf in a storm, you know, we're blown about by the winds of fate. <clears throat> and so there, you know, we, we suffer through our own projections of life that come out of this ego or this sakyaditi that's, that's created out of avicca, ignorance of dhamma, not knowing the truth, not knowing reality, we we live in a world of of, of, of phantoms, ghosts, <coughs> fears, and desires haunt us in our lives. So, uh, people say, "Do you believe in ghosts?" Well, I know what ghosts are; they're my own creation. No, I've had plenty of ghosts to haunt me and uh, make my life quite, you know, difficult. But their creation is my ego. It's a ghost-like thing. 
you know, wherever you go, you take your ego with you. So it, you know, it, not just in a haunted house, but in a, wherever, you know, your ego can jump in and, and uh, create endless difficulties. So what is it that knows this? Who is it? Who, who, is the, who is the one who knows? Say, who is it? What is it? Because uh, we want to know, we want to have a name, we want to, it is God or it is Buddha or it is, put it in kind of metaphysical terms maybe. Or, you know, have some, you know, have some definition of it so that we can grasp the definition. So this is why I emphasize that learning to trust your insight, your ability to witness life, uh, you know, rather than, than uh, try to find out what it is that witnesses or knows anything. You don't need a name for it. You don't need to define it. Or prove it, you know, as some objective thing, as some scientific discovery. It's uh, it's so it's an imminent act. It's the here and now. It's the coming from this axis mundi, this center point. So you can't get beyond it. You know, you found the 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 eye of the storm or the still point in the moving world. So this is this is you trust in this awareness. You know it it begins to stabilize. You feel as you, as you recognize it. It's a matter of recognizing it or realizing it. Then uh, then you. You know, you, you notice it because it's it's there, it's here all the time, but it's it's not recognized. When you're always coming from the ego, then you're you're out on the spinning wheel, on the circumference of the wheel, you know, spinning around. So you can't judge things from that perspective. Wherever you are on the rim of the wheel, isn't it? You you only you can only you know you're only feeling this this. Uh, this sense of confusion because things are changing all the time as it revolves. They just, you know, it's, it is frightening to to take your refuge on the on the rim of the wheel. You're going to the axis, to the still point, to the center, the unshakable point that we realize, recognize. So it's nothing more than like what we're doing right now, like with Anapanasati, that awareness of the inhalation. Not, don't get so fascinated with your inhalation, because they're not that interesting, are they? Inhalations, exhalations, and pretty boring, you know, does the same thing, goes 
inhales, exhales. <laughs> so that's not the point of trying to, to make a big deal about your breath. But to, to, to recognize that which is aware of the breath. You can't find it. You can't find yourself being aware of the breath. But to, this, so it's a recognition. This is, this is it. This is the puto. The knowing. And then the inhalation, exhalation is the object of knowing, discerning. So it's a direct knowing. It's a sati panya, sati sampachanya. Well, just that much, this, this, this uh, sense of awakeness of this silent witness, these kind of words. This is, this is uh, something to, to worship and treasure. So like, like when I come into the temple here and I see the Buddha Rupa, you know, it's like on a conventional level, I like to bow to that because it it's just a way of of giving value to in in a, in a very worldly way, in a conventional way, reminding me of this this innate ability, not 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 projecting it onto a bronze image, but but you know, it's just a um, a convention of, say, gratitude, appreciation for recognizing this very simple, this natural way that can be completely overlooked in one's life. You know, how many human beings live their whole lives never valuing it, always looking for God in, somewhere in the, up in the sky or or lives are just play, values are just placed on worldly levels, have, having money and, and uh, power. So this is the devotional side of, say, of Buddhism, where they, we're not we're not kind of creating an abstract Buddha that we that we uh, feel devoted to, but we're recognizing its reality. It's not it's not uh, an abstraction from the intellect, it's not a projection. Now, in terms of our identities, you know, the ego, we can use the convention for identity. I'm, a, I'm Ajahn Sumato, and 
all this kind of thing. These are these can be used as conventional terms, uh, or I can I can if if I'm unaware, if I'm if I need it just for for some affirmation of my self worth, isn't it? Then it, then it becomes a source of suffering. If I need to be Ajahn Sumedho so I can feel I am somebody, you know, that that I have a place in the in this community and I have a function and 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 so forth. And that then that's feeding the ego. You know, the way I need the way my ego might need confirmation and position and and all that in order to feel safe and secure on the personal level. But when you, when, when I rest in this awareness, I can be aware of that. Those, those kind of habits and emotions that arise in, in terms of how the ego operates in various situations. What comes up, what kind of situations bring up the ego, the same, where I feel personally threatened or or uh, inspired or insecure or sad or lonely. So in the like the Satipatthana is all about this, the four foundations of mindfulness. You know, when you Gayanupasana, Tadipatana, Vedananupasana, Jitanupasana, Dhammapasana is uh, the Manupasana. These are all this word vipassana is uh, is investigating, looking into the nature of things, awakening to the reality of this moment, the reality of of the body, the Gayanupasana, the not as as uh, in terms of defi- defining it, but recognizing the the reality of this body right now, as it's sitting here breathing, with its sensitivity, consciousness, the reality of sensitivity, of happiness of sukha vedana, dukkha vedana, atukha matsukha vedana. Because this is a sense realm, isn't it? The, the, the realm of eyes, ears, nose, uh, tongue, body, mind. This is, this is all about sensitive, about vedana, about, you know, pleasure, pain and neutral. Because the dualistic conditioned realm is like that. It's all about, you know, happiness and suffering, success and failure. So that the uh, Vedana is like this, happiness, pleasure is this way. Pain is this way, neither pleasure nor pain in terms of of 
sensitivity of this moment. Like even even with the, uh, you know, we think of it maybe just in physical ways, but in, in say the body, but also through sight, isn't it? When you see beauty, there's pleasure. Your something ugly comes into your field of vision, you feel pain, isn't it? Aversion, distaste, and then. And then a lot is neither. So somebody was telling me this uh, in uh, Japanese Zen, they have this practice, Shikantaza, where you, it's just a matter of sitting, you know, with no object not to fill the mind with anything. Just sitting for its own sake with awareness. And then they just <laughs> they the, they were telling me the Japanese word for hell is no space. Which is quite an interesting concept, isn't it? Hell is no space. So if your if your mind is just filled with your views and opinions, your ideas, a sense of yourself, your there's no space, isn't it? It's just it's like chuck a block. Everything's crowded in your mind. You know, one thought go you know, creates another one and and so we, we can live in a hell realm of no space where they, uh, the Taza is just space, emptiness, nothingness. Where the, that need to fill up the space to create and, and, and jam everything into it is, is relinquished. We're relaxing and we're, we're opening, we're receiving, we're letting go, we're not trying to, to, to create anything more into the space. So we can, we can find our contentment with the way it is, with the breath the way it is, with the posture the way it is. And as we stop just reacting and and uh, thinking and 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 creating endless compounding everything, making everything more complicated and difficult for ourselves. These complexities, this tendency to complicate and uh, diminishes and falls away. So we're experiencing this pure awareness, emptiness, anatta, no self. When I create myself, it takes up all the space. When I create myself as an ego, it just it takes over. There's no space left. You know, me and mine and what I think, what I like and don't like, and how things should shouldn't be, and I like this and I don't like that, and why does life have to be like this, and who's at fault, who's to blame? I don't want to live anymore. I'm fed up with life angry with God I want to be happy 
I want to feel safe and secure. I want to be respected. I don't know, the mind is just, uh, you know, filled with, with uh, this sense of me. When that's gone, and when that drops away, then there's this vast space, infin- infinity. So it's natural and it's not created, it's not precious, it's not something that we have to control everything in order to to achieve it. It's not an achievement at all. One can't claim and say, I've achieved emptiness. Some kind of uh, boasting of one's spiritual development. (laughs) Because it's like it's perfectly natural. And it isn't dependent on, on environment. One, if once you recognize this and appreciate the silent witness, the stillness, the still point, the axis mundi, then that's with you all the time, you know, wherever you are, in the, whatever conditions you happen to be uh, experiencing. So then this witnessing, say, from the listening, silent listening. So listening on this, not listening for anything, not having some object that one is, is trying to concentrate on, but this opening, the sense of expansive, receptive listening on the wide spectrum is like this. Then I I notice this nada, this sound of silence. This is a sound or what is it? Vibration? You see, we want to label it as something. I've you know, I've always wanted to know what it is and and uh Define it in some way, but that's but that that's kind of pointless. It's not necessary to to define it or make anything out of it. But just recognizing the silent witness to me that that this is where the the emptiness is most strong. The sense of the silent witness is most strong and stable.
because you can't get beyond it. You can forget it and you can focus on something else. You know, like you can concentrate on the candle flame and not no longer notice the sound of silence. Or you can get caught in your wandering mind or emotional uh, problems. Uh, and then you don't notice. But as soon as you, you recognize this, what I call sound of silence, mm-hmm. I can't get beyond it. I can't, they transcend it. But it seems to be everywhere. It has not just a kind of buzz in the ear, but it has this sense of of limitlessness. Not just a kind of... It's not a sound like an ordinary sound, because it, 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 it has no... You know, it's like a stream. It has no, no beginning and ending. It's just a continuum. So learning to, to you know, to recognize this, uh, recognize this, to realize it, because it is subtle, and and some people, you know, find because uh, usually you try to find something rather than you know try to think you've got to find this some some something like uh, a special cosmic sound that then then you create it into some kind of special kind of refined state, some kind of esoteric experience that you don't associate with yourself in any way. <coughs> so don't don't make it into anything, you know, don't don't it's not, not like something mystical. It's quite obvious once you recognize it. I remember going when when we first came to England and we lived in Hampstead. And then there there was this Burmese uh, centre in Oxford called Oakenhold, and they uh, invited us to because we were cooped up in this house in London. So the Burmese family invited us. We could spend time at their centre, which was out in the countryside, very nice place. And they had a retreat center there. And uh, at the time, uh, the um, John Coleman, who's, who was a Ubakin teacher, disciple of the Burmese lay teacher Ubakin, and he was teaching retreats there at Oakenhold quite regularly. And so he had great respect and appreciation for Ajahn Chah so when he gave his retreats uh, in 10 day retreats that's where I first started taking 10 day retreats was sitting on John Coleman's 10 day retreats he he invited us to sit there we sat right uh, you know in front of the shrine and uh, just to inspire the the uh, meditators 
because we were good at sitting and they and the, the beginners retreats they were all over the place you know you look I, I had to shut my eyes most of the time because I it's too painful to look out and see the, all these wretched people <clears throat> And then they'd play the Mr. Goenka's tapes, and so, and they're very inspiring. They sit there for ten days, and and then they'd play the one of Mr. Goenka's tapes in the evening. John Coleman didn't consider himself that much of a teacher, so he didn't say that much. <clears throat> but I remember, you know, they're just sitting there, and suddenly everything drops. You know, and then this ringing silence. Just sitting there, and then, and then, I, and the longer, you know, more I kind of rested in this ringing silence. You know, this is the no problems left, and this kind of, a kind of euphoria almost. I used to, used to be so euphoric because. And there was still, you know, the sense of, you know, coming to England into a new life in a different country and and uh, endless problems and with, you know, and that faced us and difficult scenes and and all kinds of unknown things happening and and uh, it was a pretty, um, you know, emotionally fraught time me because so much was they expected so much of me you know everybody's looking to me to solve the problems and do everything and so I felt this incredible pressure you know and, and demand <clears throat> and whether it was all there in my imagination or both probably both because I was certainly the the focus of of all these projections and expectations. And so then going to to uh, to Oakenhold and sitting on John Coleman's 10-day retreats, and we all like doing it, Ajahn Anando, Vir Dhammo and I. And uh, because it's just nice to sit in this still environment, you know, for 10 days. And there was no pressure on it. We didn't have to say anything. But we used to get so still. I remember one woman coming up and, and pinching me to see if I was real. So that, um, noticing that when, you know, through these 10 day retreats, this sense of being relieved of all this, this pressure, you know, and then, then the concentrating the stillness and everything, uh, then the mind would, would go quite easily into this state of, of stillness, this resonating vibration which I call sound of silence. (coughs) 
No, I'm, I'm, no I've, I've developed this. Uh, I didn't teach it for because I, I wasn't sure what the effect would be, you know, for a number of years. I more or less practiced it on my own because I didn't know what, what the effect would be over the long term. So and then I, once I had confidence and saw the, the beneficial effect, I've been encouraging the, this way of practice. Because I found it, you know, very, you know, just cutting through a lot of the, the um, attachments to 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 methods, to teachers, to views about Buddhism, and so forth. And I remember in uh, California a couple of years ago, just. Each the Vipassana teachers, I was pointing this out to them, and uh, they all knew it, but none, none of them knew had ever used it. And it was because of their noting practice, this Mahasi, you know, they you know, feeling, feeling, thinking, thinking practice. They they more or less dismissed it with with, uh, with some kind of notation. Because it's not in in, in uh, not not mentioned as part of the tradition. But this is where, in learning to to recognize things, are you you know the traditional forms they they are limits you know they are limited so you know it bringing uh, awareness what what you know the way things are now and uh, and if you if you attach I should note everything or you've got if you're too attached to technique you know and you don't realize the attachment to it then you're limited to a technique for meditation so I've noticed people with that teach very strong techniques of, of practicing awareness practices, uh, people get very attached to technique, and then they and they don't see the attachment to it. So then, the the technique is uh, limits them always to to just uh, when they can make this technique work. Then they then then they they feel they're meditating. <coughs> With Ajahn Chah, he was more. Well, he wasn't so technique oriented. He, you know, he kind of encouraged Anapanasati, and and um, we used the mantra Puto. But it was it was always a reflective reflection that he was encouraging, using the Four Noble Truths as the paradigm for. Uh, Looking at looking at what suffering, its causes, cessation, and the path of non-suffering. So this is a very reflective. It's not like concentrated on on developing a high level of samadhi, uh, but in 
in uh, developing a confidence in the awareness which is um, you know something that that uh, that then from that confidence once we recognize this very simple silent witness you know that's with us all the time we you know wherever wherever you are you, you can you can be aware of how things are affecting you how noise or pollution or or other people's looks, or even your own projections, your own, uh, you know, ego, how it intimidates you. Because this silent witness is transcending the ego and the sense world around you. It embraces it, as saying before, it doesn't like you're going beyond it and, and floating up into outer space, but it's, it's embracing the world of your body, your, your uh, emotions, habits, the conventional world that, that we live in. Now when I'm because I am confident in this path so, because I've I've had a number of years to to test it out, I'm not one. I'm a skeptic by nature, so it's not that I'm easily believe in things and blindly follow. You know, I tend to to towards criticism and skepticism. So, you know, I've I've put it to the test. In, in 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 my life as a Buddhist monk, wherever and here or in Thailand or wherever, whatever is happening, and this has been my refuge through the say the twenty seven years I've lived in the UK. Uh, you know, having this this is this gives me the perspective on the conditions I'm experiencing, the praise I get, the blame I get the good times, the bad times, the successes and failures, the, the, uh, the disappointments, the disillusionments, the frustrations that are part of this realm that, any, that we all have to experience. Nobody's life is going to be an easy ride, I guarantee it. <coughs> the, the, we have, you know, we have these different experiences of happiness and suffering that, that are part of our human uh, legacy. Now, when, when you are put into a position of where people, you know, looking to you for wisdom and teaching and be a perfect example, exemplary. Uh, you know, well, this thing that would do to you if you, you, you know, put up on a pedestal and say, "Now you're supposed to act like the perfect monk, be wise, and uh, all this," and you, you know, you. It's pretty uh, frightening, actually. 
And inevitably, you're going to disappoint people because, you know, you're not a, a marble statue, not made of bronze or plastic or anything. So, so uh, inevitably, with all the wise things I've said and stupid things that I've done, the refuge is, <laughs> is in the awareness. So, you know, it's, uh, and the, and the results, you know, whether it's praise or blame or success or failure. So that's the priority. Learning to, to recognize this, you know, it's a reality. It's not, not, not a kind of, uh, bypassing experience or kind of ignoring or running away from anything because you're, you're staying right in the middle of it. In that I've never, never, you know, I've never kind of run away from things. I've stayed in the middle of all the trials and tribulations of the Sangha over the years. So it's, 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 uh, because of this priority of, of, uh, this awareness and seeing how things affect me when, when I'm being criticized or blamed or when I'm being praised or adulated. The way my my emotional habits work, you know, being aware of how emotionally I'm conditioned to react to situations, and watching, observing, not judging, not making uh, value judgments about my emotions, but learning to recognize them, to see them in terms of dhamma rather than of personal uh, flaws. So more and more, this uh, this awareness, it, it, you know, I find it very it's it's stronger now. This awareness is stronger than the emotions. Where in the beginning, the emotions would easily take me over. You know, because. I, they they were the force of habit, the power of those habits, the emotional habits would easily just kind of overwhelm me and, and when things got too difficult. But there is always, once I recognize this stillness, even in the middle of emotional upheavals, there's something in me would eventually remember to to be to to rest in this still point in spite of the emotional uh, difficulties. You know, and then just that, just that ability to remember, you know, you're, you know, something very disappointing or unpleasant has happened and very upset emotionally. But there's always a point, you know, once you recognize this still point, once you, you, you value it and see, see that this is the path to develop, then no matter how much you get carried away by your emotions, there's a point in that where you suddenly remember and then intentionally tuning in again to the sound of silence, at least trying to, even in the emotional uh, upheaval that you might be experiencing. So that 
this way than the emotional life. It's not. It's no longer a problem. You know, it's not. Not like the emotions need be a problem. It's it, because they they like any other condition are what they are. But your way of your relationship to them is one of wisdom and rather than of identity. So you're not suppressing or denying or judging, but recognizing, receiving them. So today, as a retreat, opportunities to to reflect in this way, encourage you to, you know, to, you know, it takes a kind of determination to to not just go into a dull state and and uh, perfunctory following of the routine, but uh, you know. Investigate like this silent witness, the puto, and just using the breath or the body or the sound of silence or whatever you know, like mood you're in. Just notice the say the. It's like this. What what mood am I in right now? And I. You know, so if I am, if I have some kind of lingering mood, you know, being unhappy or sad or lonely or or uh, just feeling bored or negative or happy or whatever, the mood, that kind of ambience, you recognize it's like this. So you, the, st- the stillness, the still point, sound of silence, then allows perspective on this on a kind of lingering uh, emotional state and then I don't need to analyze it figure out why I feel this way just recognizing that this emotion this kind of emotional power is is uh, is like this, and as you receive it and accept it, then you see it's changingness. It has no no core to it, no essence. It's just a kind of like fog, really, or mist in the mind. So on this uh, retreat time, I'm sharing my innermost secrets with you. (laughs) (laughs) Just so you can you can see how one kind of ordinary American bloke uh, operated. (laughs) As a Buddhist monk, 
but it's uh, it it's uh, you know it's so easy to you know like I did this with Lung Po Cha uh, you know I met him when when he was already uh, you know quite, you know established in his practice he was he was only about forty eight I think when I met him and and forty eight doesn't seem very old at all. And he's not that much older than, than, than I am, but, you know, about 15 years older, but he's, he's, uh, but you know how one projects on him the sense of the mature teacher and the wise sage. And, and how then, you know, your projections are, you know, he's never had the problems I've had. You know, it's easy to see Lung Po Cha as somebody that was just special, you know, specially, a uh, kind of man with great barami and it was no problem for him and and he you know he's so pure and project all these kind of perceptions on them but then we get to know got to know Lung Po Chai was very human and he he could you know he he you know you could he could relate the difficulties of his own life as a buddhist monk and the challenges and that that he particularly had with his karma I found that very helpful because, you know, to, to hear somebody like that, you know, who I admired and, and I tend to put up on a pedestal and say, well, he's, you know, he's a, a special being. But then he never proclaimed himself in that way. So he could relate, he, he would, you know, he could bring out the, 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 you know, his own difficulties, problems, obstructions, uh, and his of his life as living as a Buddhist monk, and then that that was very helpful, you know, because you're realizing it's it's you know this is, we're, we're not just you know Buddhism and Buddhist monasticism isn't about just kind of highly attained special specially gifted human beings who are somehow a step above everyone else. We're all you know pretty much the same with our Greed, hatred, and delusion, and ignorance, and and uh, egos, and it's learning how to use those things, like the the Buddhist, the Satipatthana teachings are all about how to how to tune in to see things as they are, how to how to look at things in a way that that doesn't create more problems that that you can. Do, Understand, you have know, the insight, and and to see through the the kind of uh, conditioned way we have of of uh, looking at ourselves or at scriptures. That's why Lung Po Chai emphasized the bati bat a lot, the practice, because he could see just just learning the scriptures wasn't enough, you know, because you. You learn the scriptures. If you haven't practiced, you're still your mind's still caught in the avicca, the sense of a self. Though so you learn the re, read the suttas from from a self view perspective, and uh, and you know it certainly has its value even from that level, but it's not liberating. So his Ajahn Chah's emphasis was on the bhattibat, the practice. You know. The, to put these these teachings, not just hold them up and say how great they are, and and have arguments about what the Buddha really meant by this or that, but but uh, 
apply it to your to your own experience so that then you you know because that's what they're for they aren't just kind of fascinating intellectual structures that we we're supposed to worship they're the teachings based very much on pointing always to the present awakenness here and now puto investigation, looking into the way things are. 